Chronicles. It's always a really great show. That's at 7 p.m. following the evening news. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. I had my microphone all tangled around my ears. That just shows you I'm completely rattled. It has to do with this change. This change of administration has got me all flustered. I I can't stand it. I had to go from my my pile of laments. You know, things are either laments or praise songs. And I, I, I had to throw away all the lamentations, move over to the praise songs, because, of course... Things are looking up. We hope, we hope, we hope. We must be careful. You know how that goes. Uh, always scared, you know, uh, that when things look this good, then maybe something's hiding, waiting in the wings. Uh, anyway, this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is November the 11th, 2008, and we're going to the White House. Barack Obama and his beautiful wife, Michelle, and... Oh, yes, and Malia and Sasha and the puppy of their choice. I think they should get a combination Labrador and Poodle. We'll call it a Labadoodle, right? <laughs> it will be as famous as uh, FDR's little dog, Fala, right? Uh, I I got a kick out of so many of my friends. Uh, they were shocked when they saw Michelle's dress, that beautiful black dress with the slashes of red, you know. And one stuffy little um, person that I know said, "What? she's calling attention to herself. And the daughters in the contrasting, you know, one in the little black dress and the other in the red dress. And I said, well, you know, what did you expect her to do? Wear beige and pearls? You know, when you look like Michelle Obama and you're nearly six feet tall, I don't think there's any way you can avoid attention. <laughs> I just hope that the Bush boys don't trash the place on their way out. You remember that Frenchman, King Louis the Fourteenth, Après moi, the deluge, after me, the flood. George W. seems determined to throw some wrenches in the works any old way he can. Spiteful exit. I'm going to write to Laura Bush. I'm going to ask her to uh, pour her husband a drink, whatever. It looks like he's going to be mean to the end. In any case, this week I wanted to go to the Berkeley Rep to see... Uh, 
uh, Joe Turner's come and gone. The uh, August Wilson play, and I got sick, and I sent my friend Veronica, Veronica Faisant, my engineer. And she said that what she saw was something that reminded her of Barack Obama. She said one of the characters in the August Wilson play just, um, you know, spoke to her. Are you in there, Veronica? Yes, Jennifer, I'm in here. What did you What did you think of the play and of this particular character? Well, uh, actually, I have to confess, not too much familiarity prior to this time with August Wilson. Now, I know that he's written a series of plays regarding uh, the transition, African-American transition from slavery to freedom. Uh, just a little detail on each segment. And this particular play is the third in the series of ten that um, shows what life is like for people living in a boarding house in Pennsylvania. So we have a group of characters um, displaying, displaying what some people would call various levels of dysfunction. <laughs> in other words, you know, transition is hard. You know that, Jennifer. Transformation, that's the word today. Did I say transition? You said okay. transition? No, I transition did. is good. Transformation, too. Exactly. But the hardest part, I think, is the transition because you can be transformed, but at some point, you have to go from A to B. Mm-hmm. Now, there's one character. I'm not going to go into great detail about this play because it's being discussed endlessly on KPFA. As a matter of fact, if you've missed any of the narrative, I understand that Delroy Lindo, the director, will be interviewed on Thursday by... Thursday, Richard Walensky's show, same time, 3 o'clock. Exactly. So now... um, you know, essentially, it's very intense character study. And as an African-American sitting in the audience, I have to tell you, I was a little, I felt a little uncomfortable being one of a handful of African-Americans. Well, okay, maybe there were 10% of us there. <laughs> but essentially, it's about African-American life. And um, if people are uncomfortable with the N-word, I just have to warn them because it does get bandied about a lot, particularly in the first part of this play okay and uh one character in in, uh, particular i feel is the foundation of the play they call him bynum and he has the ability to bind people together in other words if you have someone in your life that you want to stay with you if you want them to stick to you he is the one to go to this man does african rituals um he, he even There's a scene in which uh, he's described as killing pigeons and drinking the blood as part of his rituals. But with all the madness around him, he seems to be the focal point, the one who displays the most uh, integrity, the most uh, feeling of uh, compassion and groundedness and insight. In other words, he keeps everything together. He binds people, places, and things, which is very necessary. In the overview of this play, people are struggling for their identity and sense of purpose after, you know, when we got here, our purpose, (laughs) uh, you know, our lives were already crafted for us. There was really nothing to think about if you are kidnapped, brought to this country, and you're a slave. That's it. It's not like, am I going to go to work today, you know? (laughs) So uh, so now, with 
freedom. What do you do? And I love it, Jennifer, because it just reminds me so much of what's happening now with our great hopes for the new administration. Mm-hmm. Now what? And Bynum reminding me of Obama, as I mentioned mm-hmm. you, as someone who is able to keep his calm coolness and has a certain amount of insight that goes beyond the superficial mm-hmm. in everything that he does. Now what are we going to do? I, I went uh, to a meditation once, uh, one of those beginning of the year things, Mm-hmm. And the question that the facilitator wanted us to contemplate is what happens all of a sudden if there's peace on earth? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. <laughs> uh, you and I have discussed politics, and I told you I feel a little bit uncomfortable calling myself a progressive because, well, I don't, quite frankly to me, the progressives kind of are uncomfortable with a lot of things. <laughs> I would even go so far as to say some of them are downright whiners, okay? <laughs> So now what do you do? Are we are the progressives going to keep looking for Obama to break their hearts to fail mm-hmm. in order for them to feel gotcha. comfortable? What do you think, Jennifer? Well, he'd be the scapegoat, obviously. You know, uh, I remember back in, um, oh, 40 years ago, 68. Well, that would be Martin. But anyway, you know, we used to sit around in the workshops and say, well, you know, black American, they're going to have to save us, you know. Yes. Because, uh, you know, you've been saving us since forever and take care of us. And Andrew you know, Young said that's why he got elected is because things got so messed up they needed to give it to us for a while. You remember all those, right, all those black mayors all over the United States. As soon as things collapse, they say, call the black man right. see, and give him the job and then we can blame him for all that. Stuff. Like in the good old days. What was that? Uh, that's not the... Uh, Who's the mayor of, who's the guy down in L.A., uh, the Bradley Syndrome, something oh, like oh, that. Oh, the Bradley Effect. The Bradley saying. Effect, right. Yeah, it's 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 a game. I think they'll do the same thing to women, you know. They say when things have gone to hell, it'd be to, when women take over, but no. So women are next. That's yeah. what you're predicting? Well, I don't know. History, uh, history, uh, what is that? Uh, Gertrude Stein, she says, uh, let me recite what history teaches. History teaches. I think, you know, somebody else said, study history, learn your place in time. All I've got for us today, I guess, I think I've been very tired because, as you say, when when things look up, then you think, oh, my God, now what? You know, instead of moaning and groaning and screaming that we've been uh, effed over, you know, we can turn around and say, well, uh, Maybe we should try to fix it. As I said, it's going to be such a mess uh, to clean up what's been going on, well, since 1980, I guess I would give that date. But uh, it obviously goes back much, much further. What I found myself doing this week was reading W.E.B. Du Bois, The Souls of Black Folk. And then I got to tearing up, you know, too too much, too much of the past and um Fortunately for us, Barack Obama is not uh, stuck in that, uh, that what do you call that, that cul-de-sac, you know, that weight of history. Um, he doesn't, what is that, he doesn't carry that, or if he does carry it, he carries it very lightly. You know, I think maybe being raised in Hawaii was a big help, you know. Um, his wife's family is more, well, south side Chicago, you know, but I just want to take time while I've got it here today to read you some little snippets from this old, old book. Go back a century and see uh, 
It's all about the temptation to despair and all about the times, you know, that led up to this time. And, uh, yes, it's W.E.B. Du Bois. You remember he wrote that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. The relation of the darker to the lighter races of men in Asia and Africa, in America and the islands of the sea. It was a phase of this problem that caused the Civil War. And however much they who marched south and north in 1861 may have fixed on the technical points of union and local autonomy, all nevertheless knew as we know that the question of Negro slavery was the real cause of the conflict. Curious it was, too, how this deeper question ever forced itself to the surface despite effort and disclaimer. So interesting because here, of course, he's talking about with the end of slavery came this big question mark. Well, what are we going to do with these folks? <laughs> anyway, got a few chapters here on Booker T. Washington, the Emancipation Proclamation, and, yes, all the problems. I want to ask you, did they mention Liberia? I was going to say, uh, he has one uh, chunk here on Liberia. He... <sighs> He had some trouble with Marcus Garvey, you know, this difficulty of uh, Marcus wanting uh, only the the very dark uh, African-Americans. <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't going to go with any of these uh, people like Obama, you know. Um, <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, uh, that doesn't get to be such a problem, you know. <laughs> I got, I'm sorry, but it's just too silly. And I, uh, it's so offensive. And so many people are so easily insulted, you see. I just see my father having had a drop taken, as the Irish say, you know, singing songs about, you know, my pretty quadroon. And now that sort of thing... Um, it's not, what is it, it's not fashionable right now, but the fact is that, as we know in America, this is all about money and property. And if you have black heritage uh, up until the Emancipation Proclamation, you know, you're somebody's property. This is about money, people. This is not, uh, you know, this is not cosmetic. This was serious. Uh, you know, you had people owning other people. There's cash on the barrel head. Anyway, uh, uh, Let's see, Liberia would be something we should talk about because, well, of course, Miriam McKeba today, I was playing her record last night making me cry because she's so wonderful and we, we saw so little of her here in the United States, you know, because of all the problems and Stokely Carmichael and all that nonsense, five husbands she went through, but at least we had the, the records and the tapes, uh, 76 years old and she crashed down from heart attack she was such a inspiration to so many of us um anyway here we got the congress crying about there's nothing to do with slaves and blah 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 souls of blackfoot i i think what i really want to read to you is something uh my students used to find it was a little sentimental some of the things that um du bois wrote about the the difficulties the the uh, hopelessness um i think well i think i'll skip the there is a chapter called 
of the passing of the firstborn. And I can't get through it without breaking down, so I'm not going to read it. It's about the birth of his child. Um, once again, uh, this would have been, yes, a light-skinned son. Anyway, he describes the child as living behind the veil. He refers to the veil as a kind of barrier between the black and white worlds. And, uh, uh, yes, within the veil was he born, said I, and there within shall he live, a Negro and a Negro son. Anyway, he goes on and on and on about the pain and the uh, uh, tragedy of this child's life. But, of course, the child then dies and... On a certain level, he's saying that now this one individual will never know the um, the pain of the color line. Uh, yes. Uh, thoughtfulness as he watched the world, he would know no color line, poor dear. And the veil, though it shadowed him, had not yet darkened half his sun. He would love the white matron. He would love his black nurse and his little world, yes. All walked together, yes, uncolored and unclothed. Uh, anyway, this goes on at great length, and uh, it may be that it is too too sentimental for those of us today, uh, because he finally writes, Not dead, not dead, but escaped, not bound, but free. No bitter meanness now shall sicken his baby heart till it die a living death. No taunt shall madden his happy boyhood. Fool that I was to think or wish that this little soul should grow choked and deformed within the veil. I might have known that yonder deep, unworldly look that ever and anon floated past his eyes was peering far beyond this narrow now. Actually, yes, it's, it's a little, it's a, more than most people can stand. Uh, I think of, uh, an essay by Mark Twain once, uh, his daughter had died, and he is so, what is that, so turned off by the ways of the world, the tragedy of human existence, that he says that he would not wish that she, uh, would come back, would live again, that she was, uh, Lucky to have escaped. Um, and uh, then he ends his essay. Du Bois ends his essay saying that perhaps now his firstborn knows the all love. And so needs not to be wise. And he says that he will, yes, he will see the child uh, when he sleeps, wake into a baby voice, the ceaseless patter. Oh dear, I can't take it. Um, I guess I, I, I do have a problem with Victorian sentiment. It, um, <laughs> there was a book I remember once called The Five Little Peppers and How They Grew. Yes. <laughs> that was the worst. Oh, and, um, The Bird's Christmas Carol. That was the worst Victorian one about the little girl who was born on Christmas and died on Christmas. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, let me skip to a little essay about a guy who uh, uh, was, what is it, uh, a precursor to Martin King um, long, long ago, back in the time of Wilberforce. Wilberforce was a uh, a British 
abolitionist long, long ago. This is about the foundations of the black church. And Du Bois writes a great deal about preachers and teachers. These are the black folk um, that laid the groundwork for his time. Uh, he doesn't write about athletes and entertainers. He writes about teachers and uh, preachers. And he begins each of these chapters in the souls of black folk with what he calls the sorrow songs, the blues, um, these wonderful songs from the past, the hymns, the gospel. Uh, Right, he says, this is the history of a human heart, the tale of a black boy who many years ago began to struggle with life. This fellow is called Alexander Crummel. I believe the first priest, Episcopal priest, um, minister, um, and um, someone who felt that his life was basically a failure that he hadn't managed uh, to bring about the changes he had hoped. Uh, but of course, it is his life that the later preachers built upon. Uh, Alexander Crummel. Uh, Three temptations he met on those dark dooms that lay gray and dismal before the wonder eyes of a child. The temptation of hate that stood out against the red dawn. The temptation of despair that darkened noonday. And the temptation of doubt that ever steals along with twilight. Above all, you must hear of the veils he crossed, the valley of humiliation and the valley of the shadow of death. I first saw Alexander Crummel at a Wilberforce commencement uh, season amid the bustle and crush. He was tall and frail and black. He stood with simple dignity and an unmistakable air of good breeding. I talked with him apart where the storming of the lusty young orators could not harm us. I spoke to him politely, then curiously, then eagerly, as I began to feel the fineness of his character, his calm courtesy, the sweetness of his strength, his fair blending of the hope and truth of life instinctively, I bowed before this man, as one bows before the prophets of the world. Some seer he seemed that came not from the crimson past or the gray to come, but from the pulsing now, that mocking world which seemed to me at once so light and dark, so splendid and sordid. Four score years had he wandered in this same world of mine, within the veil. He was born with the Missouri Compromise and lay a-dying amid the echoes of Manila. And he goes on at great length. Um, uh, yes, uh, he puzzled over the world for 70 years. Uh, he thought of the slave ships groaning across the Atlantic, the faint cries that burdened the southern breeze, the great black father who whispered mad tales of cruelty into his young years. 
From the low doorway, his mother silently watched her boy at play, and at nightfall sought him eagerly, lest the shadows bear him away to the land of slaves. And so his young mind worked and winced, and shaped curiously a vision of life, and in the midst of that vision ever stood one dark figure alone, ever with the hard, thick countenance of that bitter father, and a form that fell in vast and shapeless folds. Thus the temptation of hate grew and shadowed the growing child, gliding stealthily into his laughter, fading into his play, and seizing his dreams by day and night with rough, rude turbulence. I have a footnote here. I remember... Uh, reading James Baldwin's descriptions of his father, of his father's bitterness, of his father asking God to punish the white man, and he, James Baldwin, trying so hard not to follow in his father's footsteps, not to be destroyed by hatred. Anyway, Du Bois goes on to write of Alexander Crummel, this first Episcopal preacher, uh, he says, the black boy asked of the sky and the sun and the flower, they never answered question why. He loved as he grew neither the world nor the world's rough ways. Um, I'm skipping along here. This is a very long chapter. Once again, I recommend it to you highly. This is W.E.B. Du Bois, The Souls of Black Folk. He's writing of the man who, back in the 19th century, uh, we're up to about 1842 here, was struggling to um, emerge from the slave culture of uh, the United States. Du Bois writes, The 19th was the first century of human sympathy, the age when, half-wonderingly, we began to descry in others that transfigured spark of divinity which we call myself. When clodhoppers and peasants and tramps and thieves and millionaires and sometimes Negroes became throbbing souls whose warm, pulsing life touched us so nearly that we half gasped with surprise, crying, Thou too... Hast thou seen sorrow and the dull waters of hopelessness? Hast thou known life? And then all helplessly we peered into those other worlds and wailed, O world of worlds, how shall man make you one? Oh, yes. They were not wicked men. The problem of life is not the problem of the wicked. He goes on to talk about the hierarchy in the church and all the ways in which Alexander Crummel met resistance. Finally, he stood at last in his own chapel in Providence, a priest of the church, 1842. Okay, and I want to finish with you, yes, um, I want to finish with this piece. Yes, he did his work, he did it nobly and well, yet I sorrow that he worked alone with so little human sympathy. His name today in this broad land means little. 
comes to 50 million years laden with no incense of memory or emulation. And herein lies the tragedy of our age, not that men are poor, all men know something of poverty. Not that men are wicked, who is good. Not that men are ignorant, what is truth. No, but that men know so little of men. I was reading some snatches from W.E. Du Bois' The Souls of Black Folk, a book that now seems gloriously out of date. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. 60 years of KPFA, a legacy. This is Sandy in Oakland. My parents were original subscribers to KPFA when it first came on the air, even though we did not live in this area. We lived in uh, uh, the peninsula. All I remember hearing is good things about KPFA, and when I became a college student in 1957, I listened to the station and been listening and been subscribing ever since. So uh, keep up the good work, and um, thank you very much. Become part of KPFA's legacy. Visit kpfa.org slash support for information about how donating a car or participating in planned giving will keep KPFA on the air for generations to come. Visit kpfa.org slash support today. 60 Years of KPFA, A Legacy my name's Susan, and um, KPFA is really the soundtrack of our lives, and we really appreciate you being there, and it's an honor to support your work because, really, it's all of our work. So thank you. Thank you for all the memories growing up and for being here now for my students and generations to come. Become part of KPFA's legacy. Visit kpfa.org slash support for information about how donating a car or participating in planned giving will keep KPFA on the air for generations to come. Visit kpfa.org slash support today. Peace and love, peace and light, peace out the revolution. This is Erica Badu, and you're listening to KPFA 94.1. It's the People's Station. Y'all, we in the 